welcome to this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio, the very last episode of the year 2019, the last week of December 2019. What's everybody doing? We're opening up this episode of the show with the song Abobo Agogo. It comes from the band The Obsidians. It's from their self-titled EP release that you can find at theobsidiansmusic.bandcamp.com. They are a surf band based out of Ottawa, Ontario. And you know they have an upcoming show in January, January 24th, live on Elgin Presents Bad Volunteers and The Obsidians. Check it out. Let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. I want to welcome you to another conversation about something Dan Curtis-related. It is Dan Sember, the time of year that we celebrate all things genre Dan Curtis here on the podcast. And this week, we are bringing back old friend Stephen D. Sullivan to talk about a TV movie called The Norless Tapes. Now, we're going to talk a lot about The Norless Tapes and how it was originally going to be a pilot for a TV series. Just didn't get picked up, so they released it as a TV movie. It's unfortunate because it's a really cool TV movie. It would have been a great pilot. But Steve and I will talk all about that here in a little bit. Of course, we have Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This time around, he creates kind of a, a retro Christmas wish list using Famous Monsters as his inspiration. And then, of course, we have Professor Frenzy's bedtime stories because I would not let you go to bed without a little bit of Professor Frenzy. And we got a little bit of other business to get to. First of all, we got this message. Hey, Derek. It's your boy Bill Mize from over at the Bill Watches Movies Podcast. I've just listened to episode 450, your Dan Sember episode with Dominique, where you talk about Night of Dark Shadows. I said this on Facebook, but I really believe that it deserves saying again that this was one of the best Monster Kid radio episodes I've listened to recently, and I know it's because of the interplay and chemistry between you and Dominique. She really should consider creating a podcast of her own, and I think it would be wonderful, and I would certainly consider being a very special guest star on that show in the vein of uh, Foster Brooks or uh, Professor Irwin Corey. I also want to say happy holidays to you, Brenda and the kitties, and all the Monster Kid Radio listeners out there in podcast land. You have been a champion of my show since day one, and I am very grateful for your kindness and allowing me to occasionally pick your brain. I wish you and all your listeners the best for 2020, and I look forward to seeing everyone at Monster Bash in June. Take care out there, my friend, and I will talk to you later. BillWatchesMovies.com. Bill Mize. Great guy. Met him in person at Monster Bash, and we've become pretty good friends online. Bill's awesome. Check out his podcast. If you haven't checked it out yet, give it a listen. His most recent episode was about the movie They Saved Hitler's Brain. How can you pass that up? Anyway, Bill, thanks for sending that message in. I appreciate it. And I have passed the note on to Dominique to let her know how much you appreciated her appearance on the show. You know, Years ago, when I was doing a zombie movie podcast, I used to joke a little bit about how a lot of the people who would call in or send in audio clips sounded like they should have their very own podcast. I eventually learned, however, that once they started doing that, they stopped sending me feedback. So I'm I'm not going to suggest that Dominique start her own podcast because I'm selfish. I want her on my show. But in all seriousness, if she wanted to do her own thing, of course I've got her back, just like I got yours. I'll make sure there's a link to BillWatchesMovies.com 
in the show notes. We do have some plans, Dominique and I, for some things coming up in 2020, Monster Kid Radio related, maybe even something on YouTube. So stay tuned. Before we get to the rest of the show, I want to give a couple of shout outs to a couple or three dear friends. First of all, David Heath, who's been on the show before, has finally launched his podcast proper. It is called Dugs or D-U-G-S. I'm not really quite sure what the official pronunciation of it is, but you should check it out. It's being hosted over at the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. And he just released a holiday special episode and I make an appearance. I got to do a little bit of acting and you get to hear me do a really, really bad prepared for maybe 20 minutes Texan accent. That's all I'm going to say. I also want to give a huge shout out to Kyle Yount of the Kaiju cast. If you are a follower of the Kaiju cast, you know that earlier this month he put out his very final episode of the Kaiju cast. A few times that I've been a guest over there, I've learned so much and I owe a lot to Kyle and the Kaiju cast. I would not be a fan of a lot of these movies of the Godzilla films, if not for him introducing, was it King Kong versus Godzilla? King Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> you may or may not have heard Scott Morris in the background. King Kong versus Godzilla at the Hollywood theater several years ago. I'm proud to call him a friend, honored to call him a colleague. I can't wait to see what he does next. I know that he's got a video project in the works with a handful of other like-minded kaiju collectors. Stay tuned over at kaijucast.com. And then finally, I want to give a huge shout out, and not just because they're in my living room, Scott and Tracy Morris earlier this month just put out episode 300 of the Disney Indiana podcast. They've been podcasting for almost as long as I have, and I know that's not easy. A lot of times Scott will say, yeah, but we only do every other week. But dude, that's a lot of work, and we've been knocking it out of the park. Tracy's been knocking it out even harder, just because, again, she's in the living room and can hear me. But you two have just been nailing it weekend, every other weekend, every... You know what I mean. I tell people that the Disney Indiana podcast is my favorite Disney podcast, and I mean that from the bottom of my Mickey Mouse heart. So congratulations on hitting episode 300. I can't wait to see what happens during the next 300 episodes. Okay, let's get on to the bulk of the episode. Like I said, I've got Steve Sullivan on deck to talk about the Norlis tapes. We're going to get to all of that right after this. C-3PO, Loki, Mace Windu, Dr. Bruce Banner, Captain Rex, Venom, Princess Leia, Jean Grey, Darth Maul, Nick Fury, Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain America, Lando Calrissian, Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. 
which includes movies, imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes, because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. The Disney Indiana Podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. One second ago, it was human. Now the most monstrous creation of all, the return of the fly. Human beings are his guinea pigs, as once again man challenges the supreme power of the universe, then tries to hide from the world the monsters he has created. What is the terrible secret of his father's death, and how can he keep the world from knowing he is the son of the fly? The world cries out in terror at the return of the fly. also see the terrifying tale of a wedding night that turned into a nightmare. She married one of the alligator people. See it happen before your eyes. See the thing that will make your skin crawl. Don't miss the alligator people and the return of the fly. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you a story from EC Horror Comics. Today's story is The Hunchback. It's from The Haunt of Fear, number four, the November-December issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Ghastly Graham Ingalls. So sit back and relax while I tell this gruesome tale. Roger Compton was visiting a new town and walked around the rainy streets. Suddenly there was a great commotion. Townspeople were running in fear. Run, run, he's coming, they said. Who's coming, Roger wondered. Roger walked the now deserted streets when he saw someone he recognized from his college days, Peter Golgo. Golgo was a hunchback. Roger hailed Peter, but the poor guy said, leave me alone, go away, and scampered off. With the hunchback gone, the people came out of their homes. They were shocked that Roger had spoken with him. You shouldn't have done that, he's a ghoul, they said. It turns out that someone had seen Golgo dig up a corpse in the graveyard. They chased him off, but when they inspected the open grave, they found that it had been partially eaten. Other citizens had similar stories about the desecration of their loved one's graves. Roger was shocked to hear this. It doesn't sound at all like his college friend, who, though his hump was larger now, was a kind, sweet-hearted guy. Roger decided to get to the bottom of things and went up to Peter Golgo's house. He offered to help the poor fellow, but Peter declined. He said that he was beyond help. Roger then went to a local doctor who also refused to help. He felt sorry for Peter, but pointed out that it isn't a hump on his back, but a monster. Golgo was born with an underdeveloped Siamese twin on his back. The two shared one body and many organs. If the twin was removed, Peter would die. The doctor is ashamed of himself, but still refused to help. 
Roger decided to tell Peter he knew everything and went back to his house. But before he reached the ramshackle home, he heard a commotion from inside. Peter was refusing to rob any more graves for his demon twin. Then he screamed. Roger opened the door of the house to find Peter on the floor, dead, and his devil twin dead also. The underdeveloped creature bit his host on the neck to bend him to his will, but the juggler vein was severed and the two bled to death. The end. I hope you enjoyed that ghoulish story. Gruesome. I'm sure that this is one of the stories the government pointed at when they were investigating the horror comics industry. There's cannibalism, panicked villagers, a deformed man, all the tropes that make a classic creep tale. Was it over the top? Yes. Did I love it? Oh, yes. The end came rather quickly and surprisingly bloodlessly. The old witch had to explain some of the events, but all in all, this is a classic. Ghastly Graham Ingalls' style is perfect for a story like this. There are scratchy lines, distorted anatomy, even in normal people. Peter looks sleazy and Roger looks confused. The art captures what the story needs us to know. It's well done. If you're interested in a copy of The Haunt of Fear Volume 1, the book can be purchased on Amazon and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics. And on the same feed, we have Memory Minute Monday, a nostalgia podcast, and Frenzy Peace Theater, where we recap and discuss classic comic book stories. You can also catch me on Twitter at Professor Frenzy. And search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can find The Professor Frenzy Show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. We saw somebody murdered. Some sort of ritual across the river. A girl got stabbed. Two men witness an unspeakable evil and get trapped in an unbelievable nightmare. <laughs> 20th Century Fox presents Race with the Devil, starring Peter Fonda and Warren Oates. They're trying to screw with our brains, so what are we going to do about it? There was nowhere they could hide. They've seen us. There was no one they could trust. Did anybody hear anything? Didn't anybody see anything? There was nothing they could do but run and fight and race with the devil when you race with the devil you'd better be faster than hell peter fonda and warren oates in race with the devil rated pg parental guidance suggested greetings listeners it is i db spitzer beckoning you closer to the people's guide to the cthulhu mythos learn of terrible meetings in lonely places of cyclopean ruins in which vast staircases lead down to abysses of knighted secrets of complex angles that leap through invisible walls to other regions of space and time and of hideous explorations in remote and forbidden places this is an exploration of the cthulhu mythos pgttcm.com dark myths.org apple podcasts stitcher podbean or wherever you find your podcasts four three two one 
Man has conquered the moon. The world has witnessed the epic journey of Apollo 11. Now the stars lie ahead. Now take another momentous journey. Journey to the far side of the sun. But what happens when man boldly ventures into outer space and discovers a vast mystery on his incredible journey to the far side of the sun? A planet that is an identical twin to our Earth where you and every human being have an absolute double, where you can meet yourself face to face on... A Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, the astounding chronicle of man's challenge to the universe and the galaxy's fight for survival. Journey to the Far Side of the Sun from Universal in Color is rated G, suggested for general audience. Holidays, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we are going to go back in time 60 years to 1959 to see what Christmas would be like for Monster Kids with the latest FM and generous understanding parents. It is late November and your mom asks you that famous question, what do you want for Christmas? With hands trembling, you hand over a dog-eared and pencil-marked copy of Famous Monsters No. 5 with Bela Lugosi's animalistic lawgiver from Island of Lost Souls on the cover. You explain that you will be saving your mother hours of shopping around and waiting in line at the local Five and Dime, and she will be able to get you what you really want for Christmas, goodies from the back pages of Famous Monsters. You might have to wait, and wait, and wait. But even if your Christmas is a little late, It'll be worth it for all the Monster Kid magnificence you will be enjoying at the beginning of 1960. Let's take a look at what you could get. The first item on sale comes after an article about the Creature movies. It is the complete 16mm or 8mm Creature from the Black Lagoon, available for you to own. Now at 320 feet and 160 feet respectively, their idea of complete is different from mine, as that only comes out to about 10 minutes of highlights from the film. But wouldn't that be great to see 10 minutes of the creature anytime you want? Boy, are we spoiled today. You can also get similar highlights from It Came From Outer Space and Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein for only $10.50 for the 16mm version and $5.74 for the 8mm with 25 cents shipping and handling. Next, after an article about Return of the Fly, we have an 8-inch plastic fly toy. Here is how it is described. This fiber composition fly was developed especially for famous monsters. Anyone who thrilled to the movie The Fly and Return of the Fly will want to own this realistic 8-inch model of an actual fly. Large red eyes, green body, flexible black legs, and transparent wings with black veins make this the most remarkable insect blow-up ever produced. A real collector's item. The fly has a rubber suction cup on its nose, enabling you to stick it on any surface. Put it on the wall and watch the fun when someone discovers it. Place them on your shoulder and walk into a room full of people, like having your own private monster. Full price, only $2. Add 25 cents for postage and shipping charges. He sticks on the wall anywhere. Scares everybody. A whole article is dedicated to the next available item, Famous Monsters Greeting Cards. A set of cards with comic versions of the classic monsters and corny comments for all occasions. We then get to the back of the issue, where the catalog really begins. 
It starts with various items that can be used to make you into a monster. Skeleton and ape rubber hands, do-it-yourself makeup kit, beatnik beard, vampire teeth, fake claws, and masks of many of your favorites, including Frankenstein, Wolfman, and Ape Vampire Girl. My favorite is the iconic Shock Monster, whose image is well known to monster kids even today. Here's a mask that will shock people out of a year's growth. Eerie green skin, black twisted hair, yellow teeth, and a staring eye make this one of the most horrible characters ever created in rubber. Only $2. Next up in the catalog, some literature in 3D. That's right, three 3D comics, complete with infamous red-blue glasses. The best one for Monster Kids, The House of Terror. Four spine-tingling stories in exciting comic strip form. Assemble your free 3D space goggles and travel into the amazing third dimension through the pages of The House of Terror. Four great stories come zooming right out at you. Picture of Evil, The Violin of Death, The Deadly Curse of Carr, and The Devil's Chair. More realistic than TV or the movies. Limited quantity available at this special price. Only 35 cents. Those are followed by more novelty items, including a 12-inch skeleton model, a fake hypodermic needle for the budding mad scientist, and this interesting item, U.S. Army-type time bomb. Realistic 5-inch plastic bomb case with sturdy metal base has secret compartment for roll of caps. Bomb can be set to explode at different times, depending on pressure used in setting section cup. Gives 50 shots with each loading. It looks like the real thing. Put it under someone's chair and walk away. A few minutes later, boom! Hours of fun. Only $1.25 plus 25 cents postage and handling. I wonder how many Monster Kids got on the FBI's most wanted list for ordering that. After that, we have another 16mm or 8mm film available, Phantom of the Opera. Clocking in at 150 feet respectively, we are looking at about 2.5 minutes of thrills. You can also buy an 8mm projector if you need one for only $6.95. Next we have inflatable dinosaurs. Seven gigantic dinosaurs for $1 plus 25 cents postage, almost four feet tall. Command these fun-loving prehistoric monsters for your every prank. Toss them in the air and they always land on their feet. Made of molded one-piece quality latex, completely inflatable with genuine toss-up feet action thrilled to their fantastic names. Allosaurus, Sea Serpent, Prosalodophus, Trachodon, Ceratosaurus, Tyrannosaurus Rex, Armored Dementis. All seven monsters for only $1 plus 25 cents postage. Money back guarantee. Last but not least, my favorite item to get for Christmas, Famous Monsters Back Issues. Issues one through four are available for only 50 cents each and you can also get a six-issue subscription for only $2. You shouldn't be shocked at how cheap everything seems. Thanks to inflation and devaluation of the dollar, a 1959 dollar would be worth about $8.50 today. So your $20 of item would cost around $170 in today's money. That's all for this week's look at Famous Monsters. We'll have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying Feliz Navidad y Feliz Año Nuevo. No! No! Ah!
sheer stark terror grips you in underwater 3D in Creature from the Black Lagoon. The most terrifying monster of the ages rises from the sea, raging with pent-up passions. Making every man his mortal enemy, every woman's beauty his prey. Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D, starring Richard Carlson and Julie Adams. Every horrifying scene leaps out of the screen right at you. A universal re-release rated G. The Vault of Horror is about to open. You will learn its terrifying secrets if you dare. Death lives in Tales from the Crypt from Cinerama Releasing. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Some material may be unsuitable for pre-teenagers. minds of the madman of Bandorus was created the most incredible plot ever conceived to conquer the world. Why did you bring us here, really? In a matter of hours, we will begin the conquest of the world. Phil Day, undercover agent, trapped in the trap he set for the madman of Mandoras. <laughs> Professor Coleman, American scientist, believed his staggering discovery to be a secret. Up to now, anthropine was the only known antidote. The loss or destruction of the formula for this antidote would mean complete annihilation of the world. But he did not reckon with a group of evil men, men who will permit nothing to stop their rule of the world. What unknown force has been created to conquer the world? And which of the madmen pushed the panic button? Somebody's got to get Vorak. I guess it's up to me, Casey. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited Monster Kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. It's the final week of Dan December 2019. It's the final week of 2019 period, and we're going out with a bang, I think. Boom. We're going to find out here in a second. Oh, Sound effects provided by author Stephen D. Sullivan. Steve, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be back. And is it over already? It, it seemed like it hardly started. Man, <laughs> I don't know what to say about the year. How, and, and just everything's just kind of speeding to a conclusion. It's, it's crazy. Yep. We're recording this a little earlier. And if I can make it through the middle weekend of December and come out the other side in one piece, I, I will be a, a very happy man. I got a lot of stuff, a lot of Christmassy stuff going on, home church, et cetera. So that's that time of year, man. It's that time of year. It is. Oh, and I'm not just talking about my birthday. Anyway, happy uh, birthday, so what we- <laughs> by the way, I know that was very recent. So I wasn't fishing. I know I you weren't fishing. fishing, but I meant to say it anyway. I'm glad you reminded me because otherwise I would have just focused like a laser on Dan Sember. My feelings wouldn't be hurt. It's Dan Curtis. It is Dan Curtis. I mean, come on. 
Yeah. <laughs> Stan Curtis. <laughs> An amazing man. An amazing. Yeah. Man. So I wish I'd gotten to meet him, but not yeah, even. Yeah, me too. Me too. Or at least meet some of the people that worked with him, uh, like previous guests that we had a couple weeks back here in December. Just, you know, there's so much that he did that has influenced so many of my friends, so many creatives, like with you and the Frost Hero and all of that. I know that Josh Kennedy is a huge Dan Curtis fan, and, and certainly I can see a little bit of that influence in things like his House of the Gorgon film. There's just so much about what he did that has helped to inspire and, and create even more great Monster Kid content. Right, yeah. Well, his horror work is a huge influence on my life. And I was watching, in addition to the, uh, the Norless tapes, which you and I are going to talk about, I watched the uh, Master of Dark Shadows biopic about Dan Curtis last night. And at the end of it, I literally sat, was sitting in my chair and I said, thank you, Dan, for all you did for my life. Yeah. I literally said that out loud because that's what I felt. It's like my life would have been so different if Dan Curtis hadn't invented dark shadows and all the horror stuff that he worked on in the seventies, you know, my wife might've said, thank you for winds of war and maybe, uh, some of the other stuff. But for me, the master of dark shadows, the title of that bio, I, I think is completely appropriate. Now I, I have that documentary here. I haven't watched it yet. I keep meaning to open it up and just haven't gotten to it, but you give it a thumbs up. You're- oh yeah. It's, it's really good. It's good focused largely on dark shadows at the beginning winds of war and then dark shadows at the end so the thing i was watching it for i was hoping to gain some more insights on his tv movies like the norless tapes and the night stalker and that kind of stuff they really kind of zipped right past that stuff which i found a little disappointing but the rest of the content was so good and it was so good to see so many of the still living dark shadows people especially talking about their work with him. And then Barbara Steele, who I'd completely forgotten, was not only in the the Dark Shadows reboot, but was also the executive producer on the Winds of War series and the War and Remembrance series. It was so good seeing all those people that it was a wonderful experience end to end. Really, really liked it. You know, I stumble into the same issues you have when it comes to looking up things about the Norlis tapes and some of his other amazing television productions. And next year, man, I've got some really cool Dan Curtis productions lined up for Dan December, 2020 already already (laughs) picked out a few, but I'm finding that it's kind of difficult to find information or, or I don't know, firsthand knowledge of working on the film or anything like that because they were TV movies. And a lot of times TV movies, you know, they're disposable, just like anything else that's on television in the 60s and 70s. You know, they just run it once, maybe twice, and that's it. And that's all you got. I need to check out the book, The Television Horrors of Dan Curtis. Uh, Ansel Farage from a couple weeks ago did the forward on that, or the afterward on that, excuse me, and recommended it. So I need to check that out. It's by Jeff Thompson. Oh, cool. And I, I, yeah, I really want to get my hands on that, just so I can see if I can learn more about the TV work of Dan, because... I think we have a lot of information about Night Stalker and Night Strangler and the resulting Kolchak TV series, which Dan really wasn't too involved with, but still. Right. He started it off, but then he was, yeah. he was not uh, a prime mover in it. But yeah, there's plenty of info on that. But some of this other stuff, there's just not as much out there. And it's, you know, without doing kind of a heavy library dig, which honestly I didn't have time to do. There's no no commentaries on the Norless tapes even though 
I, I thought David Thinnes was dead. He's the star. But a, mm-hmm. I looked up this morning, and I would swear he had died this year. <laughs> but apparently he's not dead. He's 81 years old. William Nolan, who wrote the teleplay, he's still alive and was actually in the Dan Curtis biopic. Oh, good. He's funny. He is body and raucous for an old man. He's like all the swearing that happens in the documentary comes out of his mouth. <laughs> so he's still around, but the Norless Tapes, which is an Anchor Bay production and has terrific it's a great looking DVD. It's got no extras. It doesn't have any any making of and it could have it could have had some. And so it's it's a little tricky, but you know, my gig anyway is usually to talk about the film and how it relates to other work that they've done and how it relates to other work that, that we and other monster kids would know. So it's not like I'm really hamstrung talking about a film like this, but I wish that I had more background information. I will be looking for more as, as we go forward here. Well, I guess for now, with the exception of that one book, and maybe there are some other resources out there that I, we don't know about. And listeners, if there are, let me know because I'd like to track them down before December 2020. For now, I guess we're going to be it, man. We're going to be the final word on the Norse Norris tape. <laughs> not really. Not really. No, well, I mean, I'm not going to put that we'll, kind of pressure we'll at least, on us. We'll there. at least give you some perspective on it and talk about it. There you the, go. There you go. You know, whether whether you want to check it out or not. And I do think you want to check it out. So. Oh, I think so, too. And, you know, I, I mentioned 2020. I'll go ahead and I'll mention one of the titles right now that we're going to be doing in next year's December. Curse of the Black Widow. Are you familiar with that? I think I am. It's a 1977 TV horror film, TV movie by Dan Curtis. And there may be a man-sized Black Widow spider killing people in it. So, oh, maybe yeah, I that's coming up next it. year. Doesn't it have Betty Davis or one of those? Joan no, Crawford, it does not. One of those people in it? No. It's got Patty Duke. Oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. But she would have been young then. So, yeah. okay, I am uh, not. The answer then is I am not sure. A lot of those films... If they were shown once, maybe twice, on television, and then if you didn't see them then, you weren't going to see them again, like the Norless tapes. I'm not even sure it got rerun after its initial premiere when I saw it on television in, in the 1970s, 72, if I'm remembering right. It got repackaged and ran at least one more time, but that's about it. And then it did start getting some theatrical releases much here, li- much m- many, many years yeah, later. Yeah, like yeah. 10 years ago or something like that. Yeah, so, so it, it's, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Norlis tapes did get a limited theatrical run in other markets. I know that sometimes the TV movies would get run theatrically in like England right. or Australia. Like I've got a, a poster, a movie poster for the, what became a TV movie, Baffled with Leonard Nimoy. Right. Uh, it ran theatrically in Australia and somewhere around here, I've got that poster for it. And I, I love that movie. I would have loved it more as a TV series, but you know. <laughs> and, and, and there's a segue right there because the Norlis tapes is a, pilot was a pilot for a potential TV series. So there's a connection mm-hmm. there. And, and that was not something that was uncommon in the 70s. I don't know if you want to do any other preliminaries before we get deep into talking about this film. So I'm well, going you know. to give you that chance now and you're going to say, now we're going to skip that crap. We'll just go right to it. Or No, no, you know. You know what's up. <laughs> the classic tell, tell me what- five! There you go. There you go. <laughs> Time for another round of The Classic Five with Stephen D. Sullivan here on the show. The Classic Five is a game that we play with everybody that comes on, unless I forget, like I did recently with Frank Dietz. 
where I have a deck of cards. Each one of these cards has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer? Yes or no style question. There are no wrong answers. They are just simply designed to either start conversations or keep them going. This is available for sale over at drive through Cards. And if you have any extra Christmas money left over now that the big holidays have come, why don't you hop on over there and order yourself a deck or two and stay tuned because the core deck number two will be made available for sale there probably end of January. Cool. And then I'll also have some with me at Monster Bash. But yeah. Yeah, I love the decks. They're awesome. Are you ready to play? I'm totally ready. Maybe. All right, here we go. Card number one from the Monster Bash expansion deck. Who do you wish you could meet at Monster Bash? Monster Bash being the amazing con- convention that we... Catherine Lee Scott. Yeah? Yeah. You know, I don't know if any of the Dark Shadows people have ever been to Monster Bash. I don't know either, but uh, watching the, the Dan bio last night, it was uh, she was on my mind. She's always been one of my favorite actresses. and uh, She's always on your mind? Uh, honestly, you know... <laughs> Women I fell in love with when I was a kid, Julie Newmar is uh, probably the first one. And then uh, Catherine Lee Scott might have been third, maybe fourth, something like that. She was very uh, a very early crush for me. And I've talked to her once briefly on a phone when uh, I ordered something from her publishing company and they were out of it. She called my house. <laughs> and that was a thrilling moment, let me tell you. Oh, I bet. <laughs> so I'd like to actually meet her in person. I think that would be... That would be really awesome. And that's your end to start a conversation with her. It's like, you know, years ago. Years ago. <laughs> and I actually put her and some of the other Dark Shadows people into a, a Boy Detectives book, too, at some point. And I keep thinking, oh, wow. I should send them copies while I still have a copy or two of that. Anyway, I'd, I'd love to meet her. Monster Bash would be a, a terrific place to meet her or any of the other Dark Shadows cast members. But uh, she's she's top of my list. I probably have more autographs from her than anyone else because I bought all of her books. So every time <laughs> you buy a book from her, she sends you, a, you know, a, the book with a, a signature in the book and often an autograph bookmark or something. So at least she used to do that a lot. So Right on. And I think she, that because of that, she may have been the first autograph that I ever collected as an adult was hers. And it's, you know, hanging up on my wall, a picture of her as, her as Josette with uh, Jonathan Frid as Barnabas. And so I've got actually one signed by him and one signed by her. So, Right on. That's cool. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd love to meet her. Uh, she's uh, a, a big influence on me as a kid through her work. I wonder. We need to. <laughs> hey, Ron Adams, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> if you're looking for guests for Monster Bash, I know they like to do convention. So just, just saying. Yeah, would no, love to meet. Her, would love Laura, to meet Laura some Parker, of these people. David Selby, Jerry Lacey, Jerry I mean, Lacey. Yeah, you know, you know? They're, they're all in the the Dan Curtis biopic, and they all look great. They all clearly are, you know, would be up to doing some traveling and glad handing with fans. So. There you go. All right. So the Monster Bash deck is only available when I go to Monster Bash. It's the only place you can get it. I better make sure I have that then. <laughs> <laughs> the, I think you do. I think you do. I think you I do. Can let me know. Let me know off mic. I will. Anyway, uh, the other expansion decks are currently not on the drive through cards site, but they will be soon. And I bring that up because I'm going to give you a question from the Kaiju expansion deck. Aha. Uh-huh. Who never appeared in a Kaiju film, but you wish they had? Oh, you were talking actors here, right? Not not other monsters or kaiju. Hey, you know what? You interpret it any way you want. <laughs> Who should have appeared in a kaiju film 
but never did. And I'm going to try not to start naming Dark Shadows actors. In, hey, it's Dan Sember, man. This. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, just about to say Toshiro Mifune, but then I remembered that he was actually in that crazy Princess and the Golden Egg film that has a giant sea monster in it. So mm. I guess he did. Takeshi Shimura obviously was in a whole bunch of them. Um, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say Peter Fernandez, the voice actor. Oh, okay. Because he actually dubbed so many of those that it would have been nice to actually see him in one of them. It would be it would be cool to see him in a giant monster movie where you could actually see his face and see what he looked like. And that, okay. that made me think of something else, another voice actor, who would have been terrific as a, a manly man in a kaiju film, would have been Mike Rode, who did the voice of Race Bannon for Johnny Quest, and was Ooh. in very few films as far as I know, except he was in one of your favorites and my favorites, Destination Inner Space. Yes. <laughs> and he had, he looked like he sounded. He could have played Race Bannon if they had made a live action Race Bannon film in the 60s. They'd have had to dye his hair. And, you know, it probably was based on George Papard, but he could have played him and he would have been terrific in a, a kaiju film too. So that's what I'm going to go with the uh, Mike Rode and Peter Fernandez. All right. All right, card number three. Who's your favorite actor to play Dr. Frankenstein? Ooh, uh, Peter Cushing. I'm going to have to go with Cushing. I mean, I, there's so many other ones that I, I like, and, and certainly Colin Clive is uh, near the top of that list. But Cushing makes those films he, because – a lot of the Hammer films, even though they say they're Frankenstein, and as a kid, I would always be disappointed that there weren't the monsters weren't better. <laughs> in the well, I mean, yeah, you, you got a, a really good looking monster in the Christopher Lee one, and then the monsters are kind of yeah, but Frankenstein, the actual Frankenstein, drove all those films forward and made them worth watching. And they, his performance is one of the reasons that uh, Frankenstein created Woman, which is not on the top of a lot of people's list, is near the top of my list of Frankenstein films. And it's it's largely because of him and because of the twist on, well, if we're not going to actually have a monster monster, let's do something else. And Cushing makes it work. You know, he, yeah. could, he could sell anything. He could uh, yeah. he even looks good as a resurrected guy and the star Wars movies when they cloned him. I know some oh. people, some people hated that, but my wife and I just watched it the other night and we're like, you know, if I didn't know he was not real, <laughs> I would totally buy it. And it's, it made me so happy just to see Peter Cushing walking around again when I saw it in the theater. And again, the other night it's like, Oh, it's so good to see him. <laughs> so Peter Cushing. There you go. All right, uh, let's see. Card number four. What two 1930s monster movies would make a great double feature? Oh, this is hard to do because I actually, you know, and I don't mean to make anyone envious, actually saw a lot of these in the theater during the the revival movie houses of the 70s and early 80s. So I've seen a lot of, you know, I've seen Frankenstein and Dracula as double features in the theater. So let's let's try to, Think of some that maybe 
maybe you wouldn't think of, which is uh, that's really tricky because I always want to go on to the the Universal classics. Uh, um, yeah, well, it's Universal. There's a reason why they're so beloved. So I get that. Uh, let's let's try. Let's let's do. Um, I love the Wolfman, and I, I'm seeing the Wolfman in the theater. It's always a Okay, but the question is 1930. Oh, that's right. Wolfman's it's 1940, isn't he? Yeah. Wait, is Return of the Vampire in 1942? I believe so. Oh, I, okay. Uh oh. I just lost the two that I was going to go for. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> uh, the the easy easy one would be Frankenstein. Those two would be good. Those two would be good. Return of the Vampire and the Wolfman. Yeah. I, that would be a fun double feature. Yeah, that's where I was going. But you're right. Those are 1940s films. Damn it. <laughs> Uh, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. So that's an easy go-to, mm-hmm. but it's hard not to go to that for for that reason. But let me let me say the Black Cat with Karloff and Lugosi, and okay. the Raven with Karloff and Lugosi. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was uh, nineteen thirty-five, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, I think so. And uh, and those are both terrific films. And I may have actually even seen that double feature. <laughs> That would be kind of fun to see. I mean, in the past, I've seen, I've yeah. seen them both fairly recently, and and they're just so terrific. <laughs> and you know, being Universals from the the time period, there is no wasted anything on them. They are in. They are into the story. They are out. They are twisted. Uh, Lugosi is a maniac in the second one, and uh, Karloff is a maniac in in the first one, and they're just. It's it's a grand showcase for two of the greatest icons of horror. Which would you show first? How would you program it? I would probably program them in production order. Okay. Uh, so the Black Cat first, and then the uh, the Raven after. And then restore things back to normal with Lugosi being the villain, and then okay, gotcha. Because <laughs> you know, okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, one of the reasons I love the Black Cat is that Lugosi is right the flawed hero. Of that film, and that's just so unusual. So, they, you know, it would, and I don't think they would suffer in comparison, going from one to the other, um, which which can happen. I was at a um, a revival house, and they show were showing Casablanca and the Maltese Falcon in rotation during that day. Oh wow! And. I made the mistake of seeing Casablanca first, which I, uh, I'd seen them both before. Okay. So, but both of those are five star films. But Casablanca is one of the greatest films of all time, and, and my personal favorite film of all time. Oh, it's a stellar film. Seeing the Maltese Falcon after Casablanca was like, oh, this isn't that special. <laughs> but if you see them the other way around, which I have done as well, it's like, Wow, this Maltese Falcon is really good, and then it's wow, Casablanca. So I don't think the the uh, Black Cat and the Raven would suffer from seeing them in production order, even though I think the Black Cat is a better film. Undeniably, uh, the Black Cat is incredibly special. It's a masterpiece. It is, oh, it really is, and the performances are great. But even just the production design, everything in that movie, right? And Ulmer's direction is just oh, it's amazing. No Ulmer, no the black we wouldn't be talking about it right. i don't think no I as don't great as lugosi and carla far i don't think we'd be talking about it without Almer being involved right yeah because he was always he was always kind of willing to push the edge <laughs> yeah and he pushed more than a few edges in that film yep 
Yep. That's what I'm going with. Okay. Well, final card, final question. And you know what? We have not talked about Harryhausen on the show in quite some time. This card is a Harryhausen style question. It is. Which movie do you prefer? The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad or Jason in the Argonauts? <laughs> I may have answered this previously. You may have done that. It was halfway out of my mouth and I realized, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. You may have actually a- answered this already. And the first film that you and I did together on Monster Kid Radio, which I think was maybe the second recording you did, even though it didn't it didn't air in that order. Right. Was I pulled a Star the... Trek original series, right? I did a whole bunch up front and then I rearranged the release. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Was the the seventh voyage of Sinbad, and that's what I'm going with. This is Sinbad's greatest adventure, the seventh voyage of Sinbad. See Sinbad battle the living skeleton, the giant two-headed bird, the cobra woman, the one-eyed cyclops, and the fire-breathing dragon. See the incredible, the breathtaking, the seventh voyage of Sinbad in the motion picture miracle of Dinorama. From Columbia Pictures, rated G, general audiences. I love the seventh voyage of Sinbad. I love Jason and the Argonauts. Mm -hmm. There is so much good stuff in each of them. On my five-star rating system, they are both five-star films. Fantasy films do not get better than these two films. But I prefer Sinbad because... It always bothers me that Jason never goes back and claims his kingdom at the end of Jason and the Argonauts. We're just assumed he's got the fleece and he's going to overthrow the evil king, but we never actually see that. The film just ends where when I first saw it, I thought, okay, now he's going to go back and he's going to, you know, overthrow the the evil guy. And the film ends (laughs) more stories for Jason another day, which sadly never came. So I prefer Sinbad. I'm also a, I'm a big mythology fan, and choosing between Greek mythology and the Arabian Nights mythology that's that's hard to do. But the other thing that the Seventh Voyage has going for it, aside from Kerwin Matthews, is freaking brilliant as Sinbad and had a, an amazing ability to make you believe he was seeing whatever crazy stuff Harry Housen was putting on the scene. Is the Cyclops? The Cyclops is probably my favorite Harryhausen monster. It's certainly the one that, you know, when you think Harryhausen monster, that's the one that comes up. So I'm going to choose Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which is my fourth favorite film of all time. And people are going to ask, so here they are. (laughs) Ready? Casablanca. Okay. King Kong, the original. Seventh Samurai. And then Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Interesting. Number five might be Metropolis, but it might be the creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> it's one of those. Gotcha. All right. Very cool. Well, that was the classic five. Always fun to play. And like I said, I, I don't mention this enough. You can get it online. I'll make sure there's a link on the website over at monsterkidradio.net. And stay tuned. January, some new cards are coming. And it's it's a cool thing to have. It's a cool thing just to look through. And mm-hmm. if you can find enough people that know enough monster movies to actually sit down and quote unquote play it, then it's a blast. It certainly has been fun at Monster Bash. Oh, it's, it's a, bla- a joy to play at Monster Bash. And I still have not listened to the massive recording we did. I, was that Sunday night we oh did that? Oh my God, I'd forgotten night. about that almost. Man, there was like like 12 of us sitting around a handful of tables. We had a handful of microphones set up and we just went through so many cards and had so many great conversations. We did. 
I'm terrified to listen to that recording. I haven't done it yet because I don't know how good it came out. I would love for it to uh, be something that I can use. So oh, I'll yeah. make that a point. Oh, please to do, do that. Yeah, time. because I'd yeah. love to. I'd love to hear it again. There was actually even a place during the recording where I uh, Mark Maddox was selling me some art, and I had to leave the conversation to to finalize that deal with Mark. So I want to. I want to hear what happened while I was gone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, stay tuned. I'll make a point of getting to it next year. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say, though, is something you just said. Yes, it's a blast to play with people who know monster movies, but sometimes it's even fun to play with people who may not have the same knowledge that you do or the same experience that you do, because then you get to share the love of these movies with people and maybe put them on the path to finding some other great films on their own. Right, which is one of the reasons you keep doing it. Yeah. Because maybe there's someone that hasn't thought of The Black Cat and the Raven or... or doesn't know who Mike Rode is or Peter Fernandez or mm-hmm. any of the other things that I've just mentioned in passing that now go, Hey, why don't we check out destination inner space? And then what, what's more joy than bringing a new monster movie to someone that's never seen it before. Being able to discover something new is just amazing. It's just, it's just a thrill. And not this past year, but the year before we were playing the classic five and Steve's son, Ben was there and Steve Turek, you know, not mine. Yeah, yeah, Steve Turek, excuse me. Steve Turek's son, Ben, was there, and we were playing with him, and there were some, I can't remember the card, but there were some cards that came up with movies that he wasn't familiar with. And if I understood correctly, he had, over the year, made it a point to see at least some of them. So, you know, I did my job. There you go. No, that's <laughs> cool. That's like when they had the the fantasy and science fiction poster exhibit at the Kenosha Museum a couple of years ago. I went through with my camera phone and photographed all of the posters that they had and then found the ones that I hadn't seen. And I think I've seen maybe all of them or maybe all but one of the, you know, the handful or the dozen that I hadn't seen of these hundred, 200 posters they had. It's like, and I love seeing films that I've never seen before that are from the classic era, especially if the cards can do that. Awesome. Agreed. Just nothing better than finding a new classic film to fall in love with. Well, that was the classic five. Why don't we move on and talk a little bit more about the Norlis tapes? A new classic film that you maybe have never heard of. <laughs> I'd never seen it before watching it this morning. Wow, really? I just knew that it was something I wanted to see. It's always been on my list. So I got a chance to sneak it in and gave me an excuse to watch this thing and going to talk it with one of my favorite people. And, you know, this was a lot of fun. I enjoyed the heck out of it. I have one big regret about the Norlis tapes. What's that? That it never actually became a TV series. Oh, man. There are so many. We were talking about this earlier. There are so many pilots that came out in the 70s where they were taking chances and doing something spooky or scary or, or whatever. And the 70s is prime time for like supernatural stuff to be on TV, right? Right. So, you know, there's so many things that could have been. And that yeah, that's a lot of that is the, the long shadow, as it were, of dark shadows, which... Mm-hmm. Really, uh, if it didn't start, it completely jumped up the horror and supernatural craze in the 60s and then early 70s. And these are all kind of the stepchildren or the children. This one, probably just the child of Dark Shadows. But so many are are like an iteration of something that was in Dark Shadows or that Dan Curtis had had success with. And then, you know, around the same time, we get The Exorcist and that kind of stuff. And it all was... The supernatural 60s and 70s is, you know, rolling strong at this point. And we had TV movies, and they were making monster movies as movies of the week. 
Right? Can you even imagine that now? Can't. I remember back in the 90s, I believe, they did a uh, House of Frankenstein two-night event TV miniseries. It wasn't great. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, they did it. And I think Dean Koontz's Frankenstein novels got adapted for television, but that was not on a major network. You just don't see that anymore. And right. and here you had the, you know, the... Don't be afraid of the dark and and the Norless tapes and the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler. Mm -hmm. There was just all sorts of this stuff. And it was worked into the regular rotation of television movies. Gargoyles, another one. Which I have a recording for. I I actually have a recording where Steve Turek and I talked about Gargoyles. I've been sitting on it for like maybe eight months at this point. But it, (laughs) it is in the hopper. It will come out. I just sometimes I get a little sensitive about playing too many 1970s movies right. content here on the show in a row. And every time I'm like, okay, here's a hole in the schedule. Well, I just did two movies from the 70s. I better hold off. So, <laughs> but, it, but it is here. I do have Gargoyles. One of my favorite episodes of the B-Movie cast, which is still going, but you know, back when Vince was still around and doing it, one of my favorite episodes of that show is when they talked about Killdozer. Yes. Killdozer was a TV movie. <laughs> right. Exactly. Killdozer was a movie of the week TV movie. With based on this wacky idea from Theodore Sturgeon, as I recall, and I, I'm old enough that I actually watched all of these when they were on television, the first time. Yep. And so, Norless Tapes is one of the ones that it's harder to find. Although when you and I were talking about doing this a couple of weeks back, when we first mentioned it, I did manage to find that there are some people selling in Europe, selling American versions of the Norless tapes for whatever reason for around 15 bucks, which is a, that's a, you know, that's a DVD buy price as far as I'm concerned. And I managed to find one from a little closer at hand, but it's, it's not really well known. It hasn't been a lot seen as we mentioned in the introduction. It doesn't have any extras on it. It's a bare bones kind of box. It has some trailers from other things, Race with the Devil among them. But in terms of the movie, it's the movie. It's not the movie plus extra scenes, plus DVD mm. commentary, plus the yeah, it's trailer. Bare bones. It's just, total bare bones. It's just the movie. And that DVD is currently out of print now, and I don't know why that is. Uh, what network aired this? Do you know? I'd have to double check myself, but I... You know, I always associate these movies with ABC, but I believe this one was NBC, yeah. NBC, they're not one of the ones that has a streaming service right now, are they? No. <laughs> <laughs> they so, I was going to say, at least put it there, if nothing else. A lot of else, these things, they're just contracted for a specific small amount of time, and I'm sure Anchor Bay, are they? they're still around, aren't they? But a lot of the stuff that they had originally licensed has now moved on to other other licensors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's become hard to find, including, you know, a number of their hammer, hammer films that they had at one point. And this, oh, boy. I assume that this is just, you know, they they had it, the license for three years or five years or whatever it happened to be. And now it, the license has expired, so they've stopped making them. I wish that wouldn't happen. I'm a big proponent of keeping things in print, especially when it possibly means that the people involved with them are actually getting royalties. And I don't know that's the case with this, but in any case, it's harder to find. It's is available last I knew on eBay in original, not, not bootleg discs. Yeah. Like an actual official release. Right. Yeah. You're going to have to kind of go out of your way a little bit in order to find a, a copy of it. I don't remember if I checked if it was on YouTube or not. Sometimes things like this do show up on YouTube. 
But yeah. for for what it's worth, the Anchor Bay print is brilliant looking. It made me wonder how, you know, it's like, this looks really good on, on my modern TV. And, and our modern TVs are so much better than the TVs we had at the time. There was a point where there's a, a, a piece of paper that's being read on the television and they don't voice over it. And I got up close to the set and read it. And I thought, how did we ever read this on a 1970s television? <laughs> Which had oh, you know, good point. <laughs> and the answer is I don't know, but I, apparently we did because I remember I remember watching it on on TV in the 1970s. Yeah. Well, you said something earlier about this being kind of the long shadow of dark shadows led to this, and some of the the little information I was able to find online was really it was more of a Night Stalker thing right. that. Curtis did Night Stalker and Night Strangler for ABC right. and then kind of hopped studios and did something in the mold of Kolchak for NBC. Right. And that's what you get with the Norlis tapes. And I see a lot of similarities here. Yep. And it's a similarity that I love. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I want to talk about Curtis of the Black Widow next year, because while it's not another writer character, it is a private investigator character who gets involved in some monster stuff and there's just something about that framework that trope that has always appealed to me right and you wrote a whole book <laughs> yeah that kind of trope right yeah when i was watching this i thought oh derek must have certainly taken some stuff from this for for the mark temple series only by proxy only through the other influences that i had from mark temple which would be the chill role-playing game ultimately which uh, leads to you who saw this stuff is yeah right so. yeah which is you know me and mark Akers and, and troy denning and andrea hayden mm -hmm. and, and the crew that mm -hmm. had seen all this stuff so and that's exactly long shadows of dark shadows there you Indeed. go there you go yeah i've always i've always been drawn to that i just i love it i don't know why i don't know what it is that sparks within me when i see a story like this where there is just a regular guy doing a regular job uh and he gets sucked into something and nobody else believes him and he's kind of on his own doing his thing right. and all that there's just something about that style of storytelling that i am drawn to and i respond well to and because of that the norless tapes had me from the beginning right the premise of the show is that uh it's David Norless, right? David Norless is a writer. He's going to do a book for his publisher debunking the supernatural, which is a very valuable thing to do because, you know, if you are a student of Houdini or anything, you know there's a lot of fake supernatural stuff out there. was sure. in the 1920s, was in the 1970s, still today. In fact, the vast majority of supernatural stuff is is just hokum. Anyway, How many Ghost Hunter shows are there on TV? So yeah. Just yeah, there's, <laughs> a, there's actually a new one with the original guys from Ghost Hunters that it's under another other uh, <laughs> Whether you believe that stuff or not, you cannot tell me that they do not at least over exaggerate everything on those shows. Right. Come on, it's all for the ones that always get me, and boy, we are sidetracking here, but that Ghost Hunters property, that TV show that was on sci-fi, I remember when they did the international version of that. Uh-huh. Do you remember this? Yes, I do. Ghost Hunters International. They sent them over to Europe or wherever, and they were looking for ghosts in Germany and France, and they were expecting to communicate with them in English. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> um yeah <laughs> i remember that i remember that well and i remember thinking that well that's weird you know i mean yeah. the kind of excuses you have to make to make that work is just like how many assumptions do you need to make in order to, for your supernatural to 
to actually work with you. And it's an awful lot. But yes, at that particular, it was like, that German ghost is speaking English. Here, you can hear it on the EVP session. Anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah, I like watching some of that stuff, but you know, yeah, anyway. David Norlis. Norlis is going to, in theory, debunk this. His book deadline's coming due, and he gets a call from his publisher who says, where's the book? It's been a year. Uh, The book's not ready yet. And the publisher's like, you mean to tell me you haven't been working on the book yet? You haven't written anything? And he's like, well, I haven't really written anything, but I've been making these tapes of my experiences, and it's called me to question everything I thought I knew. But I can't go into it on the phone. I'll meet you for lunch, and we'll talk about it. And then he never shows up for for lunch. And the publisher goes to his house, finds literally the first page of a manuscript that says maybe two sentences yeah right it's like (laughs) you won't believe what i found or something like that and then (laughs) discovers some tapes which norlis had mentioned on the phone that i had all this on tape it discovers tapes that are numbered from one to who knows what and decides to play the first tape and the first tape is the story that we we get in this pilot episode of the Norlis tapes. And mm-hmm. it involves a widow who comes to Norlis because of his interest in the supernatural, because her husband has come back to the dead and has killed her dog. And no one will believe her that it's her dead husband, but she thought that maybe he would. And so he investigates this mysterious return of the husband, which ends up being involved with a demonic rite, and the dead husband is kind of walking around like a super zombie, and it's it's really cool, and Angie Dickinson is the is the widow, so we get uh, you know some good star value, not only with Roy Thinnes and Angie Dickinson, but the it's a, a really good, strong TV cast. It's kind of sure. top to bottom with, with Claude Aikens. Oh, Claude Akins is great. Um, he's the sheriff. Yeah. And he's wonderful. <laughs> and he's, you know, I mean, he's just made for that, for that role. Oh, yeah. And I didn't even realize Herd Hatfeld was in this until I just saw it now, who was uh, Dorian Gray in the portrait of Dorian Gray back in the hey, 40s. There you go. I, I hadn't even realized it, but now I'm like, oh, of course that was Herd Hatfeld, who's the, uh, the gallery owner or something like that, right? And just like that, Steve just gave me the excuse to play a particular trailer here on this episode. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so Norlis investigates this and gets involved in what is clearly real supernatural stuff. And we don't want to tell too much more about the plot because probably a lot of people haven't seen this yeah i mean it's from the 70s so it's not like well it was from the 1930s everybody should have a chance you know they're they're i think the statute of limitations for spoilers has not expired on this one yet well in in some ways it has and in some ways it hasn't i mean i think we can tell as much as we told them but because it is hard to see i don't want to go through and and maybe later we'll resend this and talk about the ending or something but we'll talk about it in vague terms because i do have some questions about that right yeah i think that's that's pretty much the setup you know and there's and there's, uh, you know, Bonetta McGee is in it as a as a uh, a supernatural. What would you call her? She's a uh, a witch who runs a shop, which is a kind of a common thing in the seventies. Like a lot yeah. of here, come come in and buy our candles and our crystals and and you know whatever little <laughs> fake potions we have. So, it's a common thing in the seventies, Steve. I live in Portland. It's a common thing now. Yeah, <laughs> Remember when, it, like, uh, a couple of minutes ago 
when I said debunking the supernatural is still something that needs to go on nowadays. <laughs> there you go. You know, and, and okay, you know what? Maybe disclaimer time here or, or whatever. You know what, listeners? Believe whatever you want to believe, man. You yep. know, we're not judging. What we are judging is people that take advantage of other people exactly. citing this stuff. That's that's where we're coming There's from. There's a lot here. of weird stuff in the world, and yeah. some of it has even happened to me. But there are way more hucksters looking to make money off of weird stuff than there is mm. real, weird, actual, verifiable, weird stuff. That's all I'm saying. So, Vanetta McGee, I just want to mention real quick, because I want to play this trailer in this episode. She was in Blackula. Right. There we go. Okay. And she's very good in this. Oh, she's great. Yeah, I love that there's like these little pockets of, of areas like the, the, the weird little section of the library you can go to or that weird little bookshop off on the corner that you can go to and all of these stories that they know a little bit more than they're really presenting or they have the special information you need. In fact, I'm writing a Mark Temple story right now where he goes to somebody like that. Right. And I, I just I love that. Again, it's part of that trope, that style of storytelling that I love. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's really cool whether it's in this or whether it's in uh, Banachek with the bookstore that Banachek was always going to. For yeah, Back exactly. before there was an internet, you needed people that knew things. Exactly. Because you couldn't type in Google, how do I defeat the demon Moloch? Which is not in this film. But <laughs> no, not at all. If, if anything else, we, we start dipping into some maybe some Egyptology with this but even that is a stretch i feel like right. it's one of those things they kind of sprinkled on for flavor right. but really didn't dive into yeah the mythology and, much and but that's okay we've talked a little bit about the story let's back out a little so mm-hmm. that people know that dan curtis directed this yes he did that's his connection with this dan curtis produced and directed this and it's among a handful of films maybe more i'd have to count that he directed himself. He didn't always direct. A lot of times he put things together and other people directed. Well, even the Night Stalker, he didn't direct. He just produced that one. He directed the Strangler, but not. Right. So, yeah. And sometimes he wrote things. He often wrote things Mm -hmm. and he often shaped the story. It was funny listening to his biopic last night that one of the writers of dark shadows was like, once Dan stopped coming into the writer's room all the time, we kind of lost our way toward the end of the series. Like we needed, Dan was the guy that kept us on focus and kept us on track. So he had a big hand in how things were done in a lot of his productions. This one he directed. I, I love his direction. He really makes the most of kind of the minimal budget and time and all the other TV constraints that he had to work with. I think this is a genuinely scary film at points. It's oh, yeah. loaded with atmosphere. It's loaded with shadows. It's creatively shot. It's funny. When I think of Dan Curtis, I always think of Robert E. Howard. And I know Derek is now smiling <laughs> because I've said that. Because- well, I'm smiling because now I want. To, I wish there was a way to, to go back, get Dan Curtis to direct a version of The Blackstone. That's what I want. <laughs> and it would be awesome because Dan Curtis and Robert E. Howard had what I would call direct muscular styles, Howard in writing, Dan Curtis in writing and directing. They were kind of go right at the heart of things and give you all the information you need in a very kind of straightforward and powerful way. That's his, his storytelling. That's how he works. Mm -hmm. And he is really good at building suspense. 
he's got his his favorite composer Robert Cobert, otherwise known as Bob Cobert, who worked on Dark Shadows and worked on God. He may have worked on everything Dan did, <laughs> as far as I know. I'd have to go back and and check. But their association was long, and the minute the Norlis tapes started, I thought, oh, that's Bob Cobert's music. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm Which very is great. Yeah. mistaken, and it's great. And between the two of them, between the camera angles, the lighting, the shots, the suspense on this movie is palpable. And there's there were scenes you watched in the morning, probably. I was watching mm-hmm. it at night. It's Uh-oh. spooky. <laughs> it's scary, where you're really yeah. kind of like, what's going to happen? Even when you think you know what's going to happen, he still manages to ramp up this the suspense. And really kind of suck you in. Since we've mentioned this is Dan Semper, so of course it's going to be about him. But we also should mention William F. Nolan, who wrote the teleplay, who also worked with Dan on uh, Trilogy of Terror. He didn't write the Matheson piece that everyone remembers. I think he wrote both the other two, which are also very good. This is the first time Nolan worked with Curtis. Is it? Yeah. So this is before the Trilogy of Terror. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Nolan is, of course, very well known for Logan's Run, which he yeah. he wrote, co-wrote, created. And from a, a story by a guy named Fred Mustard Stewart, who apparently wrote a lot of stories, but I could not find any record of this being a short story that I could find somewhere and read. Oh, it'd be fascinating. Oh, I would. Oh, man. I, I spent a lot of time the other night trying to find it. <laughs> and maybe someone's like, oh, you're wrong, Steve. It's right here. Uh, which would be wonderful. But I also saw a note that said, well, Nolan said he worked over the story pretty seriously and, and rewrote and added a lot of stuff. So I'd still want to read the original story by Fred Mustard Stewart to see, but I'm, I'm aware that Nolan probably did contribute a whole lot to it. And, and again, mm-hmm. he's still with us today. And so we have a top flight director. We have top flight writer, the stars, we mentioned Roy Thinnis, Angie Dickinson, and, and company. We didn't talk about Roy Thinnis. He's probably best known to our crew as a David Vincent from uh, another David from the Invaders, the main character in the original Invaders series. And I know, Steve, you haven't heard this week's episode. I'm just wanting to check here about the Invaders. In Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland in the most recent episode, which that, that was released, which was the Ansel Farage episode, he mentioned the invaders and I had to come clean and say, I've never seen it. Should I watch it? Let me know listeners. Steve, <laughs> should I watch the invaders? You totally should watch the invaders. It is Fair on enough. currently on me TV at 11 o'clock central time on Saturday nights during their Saturday night lineup following Sven Cooley. Sounds they're, good. They're into the second season. Now the invaders is basically, have you seen the, the original fugitive series? Yes. It's the fugitive with aliens. <laughs> well, and I, I watched some commercials for it, and I mean, it looks like it's going to be that thing again, where there's one guy who stumbles into something it's, and has to try to fix it, and nobody believes him. That's exactly yeah. what it is. And yeah. so it's it's kind of by the book a lot of times. But it's a good book. It's a, <laughs> it's a very good book. It's, you know, it's one of those, uh, my wife and I were talking about story ideas that never can basically never go wrong seven samurai is a story idea that no matter how many times you redo it it works right Mm -hmm. you could put it in the west you could put it in star wars you could put it wherever and the the fugitive idea of one lone man on the run working against the system the man the invaders 
it's hard to screw that up. And this is, aside from The Fugitive, this is the original science fiction version of that with David Vincent on the run from the invaders. And that, obviously, there are some parallels that come right into the Norlis tapes, but that makes him a kind of a perfect person to play the lead character because he's kind of done something similar before. Thinnis also was Roger Collins in, if I remember rightly, in the reboot of Dark Shadows that Dan Curtis did. Uh, and, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, he was he was in that, and uh, Barbara Steele was in that, and uh, probably some other important people that I'm forgetting, but those are the two. Ben Cross was Barnabas. Those, uh, Roy Thinnis, was, he was in that, so clearly Dan Curtis liked working with people he liked to work with. So if you start seeing people over and over again, they're like, oh yeah, here's Roy Thinnis again. Here's, you know, here's Barbara Steele again. So that's, that's not really surprising. So this was a really good fit for him. He's a very different character than Kolchak. Uh, Kolchak, the rumpled reporter, is, you know, kind of always on the edge with his boss and that kind of stuff. This is much more of a, things were going fine <laughs> for David Norlis until he took on this assignment. Right, and so he's he's a great person to play that, and Angie Dickinson obviously she's known from her TV work from Police Woman, from uh, Big Bad Mama with William Shatner, and and tons of other things. She's really good. Though some of the criticism I saw on this was she doesn't really have a lot to do. She's the widow of the undead character. Can we talk about the undead character? I want to talk about him. Yeah, we certainly can a little bit. You know, I wanted to mention the related to her and the undead character. There's a scene early on where she mm -hmm. encounters him. She has a German shepherd dog and spoiler alert, the dog is killed. Yeah. And I think that's something people should know because what, as an animal lover, anytime something bad happens to an animal on screen, it hits me harder than sometimes if and, something bad happens to a person. And the reason so. I brought that up right now Aside from the fact that her character is there and, and behaves in a in a way that's not unusual for the seventies, and waves and behaves in a way that's pretty powerful in terms of women characters if, you know, over the history of women in film, but that sequence was filmed and cut in such a way that looked so real that even though you don't really see what happens to the dog entirely, I totally believed, yeah, that the undead character just killed this dog. <laughs> it was yeah. like. Cut, 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 quick cut, see the fur flash. And a lot of times when that happens, you're like, oh, yeah, here's what they did. But the way Curtis put that scene together, I was totally convinced that that guy, that evil zombie guy grabbed the, the dog and killed it. And that ramps up your emotions, you know, even if you're, mm -hmm. you know, not the, the big kind of animal lover. Not that I don't love animals, but you and, and, and Brenda are clearly much more sensitive to that kind of stuff than I am. So. Sure. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I don't mind giving that away because just be it's, prepared. It's be very prepared early listeners. in the film. Yeah, that is very early. True. So the undead character, uh, he's played by a stuntman, Nick Dimitri. And when this movie started, I didn't know that I was about to watch uh, technically a zombie movie, which people know my history with zombie movies and that I kind of got away from them because I just got overwhelmed with them with my previous podcasting i guess career uh right <laughs> you know uh, so i wasn't expecting a zombie and then a zombie shows up I'm like oh no but this guy was great yeah he is he's awesome <laughs> and he's not really a zombie i've seen not it's quite funny. i was looking at reviews of the film and mm -hmm. it's 
variously described as a zombie and a vampire. And he's not really either of those things. He's kind of a, a different kind of supernatural undead creature that has traits of both in a way. Traits of both. And they, and they play with that a little bit. And Nolan's clever enough that he kind of meshes it together and makes it something different and unique. And that's part of the creepy is that you don't really know what's going on with this guy. What, what I the- saw him described as a vampire, a zombie, and my favorite, super ghoul. There you go. Super <laughs> he's ghoul. a super ghoul. Right. <laughs> he's and, got a great look. And he's got oh, a his very, eyes are amazing. He's got a very basic makeup on. Just like a basic dead, you know, bluish skin makeup. And then Mm -hmm. these amazing contact lenses. Oh, man, the eyes are great. Uh, Think back to like earlier seasons of the show Supernatural and they were fighting the demon called Yellow Eyes. That's what it made me think of. Yeah. Is that the way the eyes looked, except in this case, he actually did have pupils uh, in, in there's a series yes. that I've only seen like the first season of. So yeah, supernatural. It's on my list. It's on the list. Don't call in. <laughs> anyway, yeah, <laughs> I, I fell away from it too after a while. But no, this guy just looks great, and the color of his skin, man. See, I don't know how this happened. I've never seen this stuff before, right? But I'm trying to make movies as a kid. I think I'm going to be a filmmaker when I grow up. And I make this little zombie movie in 1999 called Cash Only. One of these days, I might make it available for public consumption on YouTube now that I have a copy of it myself again. Cool. Uh, the zombies were that color, <laughs> basically. It's kind and of bluish color. Yeah, this kind of bluish with a little bit of green, a little bit of gray thrown in. And the way we came up with that effect for us is we just mixed a whole bunch of different colors together, some foundation with some cream makeup and mixed it all up, put it in a jar, and we called it our ghoul goop. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, oh, you're going to be a zombie today? Here, Mike. Mike was kind of my assistant director, assistant producer. Put the ghoul goop on him, okay? And he'd give him the jar and he'd go and do his thing and he'd come back and, hey, he looks like like that. So Yeah, well, and it's it's a similar makeup kind of to... Plague of the Zombies. Yeah, yeah. It's a similar and, kind of makeup, too. And I hadn't seen Plague of the Zombies at that point either. Somehow, through you, through Chill. <laughs> <laughs> and I was the art director, so anything that anything you saw in Chill was likely I was responsible for. <laughs> so, somehow, the Chill role-playing game communicated to me, a colorblind guy, what the color of Dan Curtis's zombies were. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> That's hilarious. So yeah, it's uh, it's all long shadows of dark shadows. <laughs> but the, okay, the undead yeah. guy is really cool. He's mm-hmm. not a mindless zombie. He's not a, a traditional vampire either. But there are you know a lot of corpses ending up, and the monster scenes are pretty cool. It's the makeup. You know, people are going to go, oh, that's very basic makeup, but it works. Oh, it's it's. Great. And the scenes are frightening. There's an energy to it. You talked about Curtis having a very muscular style of storytelling. There is a a really angry energy to those scenes with that character's movement. And I'm sure part of it's because he's an action guy. He's a stunt guy. He's used to kind of moving with adrenaline and, and that helps. But there is this energy, this intensity with this particular beastie, with this monster that makes him terrifying. Right. And he's honest to God, he's scary. I don't want to oversell this to people because it is a 1973 TV movie. But sitting alone in the dark, just concentrating on this, watching it, it was scary. 
mm-hmm. it was scary in a way that honestly a lot of modern gore pictures aren't you know it's i was watching deep rising the other day which is a you know monster on a on a ship in the middle of the ocean and mercenaries trying to fight it it was dopey steven summers kind of fun but i never really felt scared in it i never there weren't moments that really made me kind of jump and made my heart beat but this one there were moments that were like oh i did not see that coming <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I, I did not expect that that that's surprising that's terrifying where the 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 angles the shadows the stuff that curtis is doing combined with the the work of of the ghoul it's it's heart pounding it's really it's pretty cool if you it's similar in ways to the way the original night stalker vampire was shot and moved and that kind of stuff it's because that also invokes a very similar kind of sense of dread at times that honestly you can't replicate with CGI. You just can't. You're much better off light shadows, things seen, things barely seen, things unseen. Like I said, the, the scene where the dog is dead watching, I was like, wow, they really convinced me that that dog was, that the monster had killed the dog here. Now the seventies, we had great horror TV movies, right? Great horror on television. Some things that are really affecting with shadows and and subtlety. But then you also have the exploitation cinema of the 70s, which is all in your face and all there. And I don't think you can compare any of those kind of 70s exploitation monster horror movies or whatever to what Dan Curtis was doing on television. You know, they put all the blood on screen, doesn't matter. You watch something like this and you are terrified. Right. It is. It, it, okay. I watch it in the morning. Sure. Watch it with a cup of coffee. I've got my cat sitting next to me purring along. You know, I'm having breakfast, whatever. But it still got me, man. Right. <laughs> you know, it still got me. This guy is scary. Yeah. There are some jump scares too. But there is a mood that you cannot get away from. Uh, like I said, I tried to do some research on this film beforehand and just didn't find much, but I did find some reviews and I think the website film school rejects put it best when they said the Norless tapes is a tight little horror thriller, teasing more ethereal supernatural aspects before delivering with some visceral scares and tangible nightmare fuel. There you that's go. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It really no, is. I think that's a, that's a, a pretty good summary and a huge amount of that is down to Dan Curtis as a filmmaker. I mean, mm-hmm. he wasn't really, in some sense, a director. He didn't have training for this kind of stuff, aside from the fact that he'd been working with Dark Shadows for all these years. It's funny to hear them in the bio talk about Dark Shadows as a short-lived soap opera, and in some sense, that's true. It ran from 66 to 71, I think. This uh, was a five years. Right. But... 2,000 episodes. Yeah, the amount of content. (laughs) I haven't sat down to really figure it out because each episode is just slightly different in length depending on how many commercial breaks they had that day. Right. But I do wonder if anybody's gone on and figured out how many minutes, how many hours of Dark Shadows exists in the world from that original run. You know, I figure they're they're between 20 and 23 minutes, most of them closer to 21. Sure. So you could just multiply it out. It's a lot. But he oh, wasn't directing so much. Them. He wasn't directing them. No, he, he was, was just working in the booth and stuff. I'm mm-hmm. not sure what his first directorial job may have been. The Night of Dark Shadows, or um, yeah, Night of Dark Shadows. That's the first one. No, House of House Dark, of Dark Shadows, Shadows was the first was one the first in 1970. One. Yeah, that was his first actual film directorial 
Right. Exactly. Film, uh, and job, it's, I guess. It's deft. This was a guy, you know, people talk about him as kind of being a genius. And the, the actors loved him. They were all really, really fond about of Dan, even though he pushed them hard and stuff like that. It was like uh, Nancy Barrett, who played Carolyn, said, if you're stranded in the middle of the ocean in a rowboat with one oar that was sinking, you would want Dan Curtis to be the other guy in the boat with you because he would figure out some way to save you both. <laughs> hey. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a strong testimony for how mm-hmm. much the actors liked him. But he didn't have what one would consider a huge background in directing and maybe that helped him in some ways because he was always like what i've talked about he was always going at the problems in a direct kind of muscular way and that really works it works for suspense it works for horror and it you know i mean he won emmys and stuff for the the uh, winds of war and the war in remembrance when he did that you know years after this anything that you feel in this i think you have to attribute a lot of it to the way he put it together the way sure. he directed it, the angles he chose, the you know the cuts he chose, uh, and the way he's got the people going. I mean, it helps that he's working with Robert Covert, who's really good at kind of like kind of like just mm-hmm. simple chord progressions of you know a deep bass or something like that, and then a little kind of chiming violin up higher to kind of amp up the suspense so that even there's there are scenes where nothing is happening except norris is driving his insanely cool stingray corvette convertible down the pacific coast and you've got you feel tense about the fact that he's driving this car down the road in the rain going wherever he's going and what the hell is going to happen to him next and that's filmmaking magic yep and dan curtis was the head of that and that's why we love them. It's really affecting really good work. And it's always fascinating for me on a personal level to see where some of the influences that I have just long incorporated into my just style of storytelling ultimately come from. Like, you know, we kind of joke a little bit that, you know, Steve watched this as a kid and then he worked it into his role-playing game stuff and I played the role-playing game stuff. So, you know, we, we've been joking about that, maybe even writing that particular statement a little hard, but it's fascinating for me to discover these things. I, I had a similar moment when, back when we were doing 1951 down place with Scott Morris and Casey Criswell, when we watched uh, the legend of the seven golden vampires. And I realized, Hey, this movie that I made years ago for film, you know, in film school or whatever that had vampires and zombies working together. That's where that came from. You know, <laughs> just, just putting these things together and realizing where these influences come from for me is incredibly satisfying. But beyond that, on a different level, this was also just a really good story and a really good show. Yep. And it's not long. It's like 72 minutes or something like that. Yep. So there's not a lot of wasted space, not a lot of wasted time. You know, I'm, maybe a little numb to the fact that things were more leisurely back in the seventies in terms of filmmaking. Yes. They have scenes of him driving down the highway, but usually when they're, he's going somewhere, when something's going on, there's the tail end of a conversation going on over the actual drive, or there's some kind of little narrative trick that he's using to, you're seeing him driving, but you're hearing the conversation he's having with Angie Dickinson or his publisher or something going on. So there's not, like I said, there's just not a lot of dead space. There couldn't be. They didn't have a lot of time. Yeah. 
72 minutes is not a lot of time to do a movie, but it's honestly a lot of good movies are around 72 minutes long. So highly recommended. I will say that there are some really cool twists and turns. There is more than one monster in it. Oh, spoilers. And yeah, that's all I'm going to say there. And it ends the perfect way, man. The publisher saying, huh, well, that doesn't explain where he's gone. <laughs> right. And, oh, hey, here's and, the next tape. Now, I remember using those cassettes, right? Yeah. I don't know if he could have put all of that information on one tape, but okay, whatever. You know, he starts the next tape. Okay, chapter two. And then camera pulls back and that's it. The next episode would have been the next story, and I would have loved to have seen where this went. I think I said that was my big disappointment about the Norlis tapes, is that there's just not a second one. Why? 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 It's because people that are visionaries like Dan Curtis, and I don't think you can doubt that Dan Curtis was a visionary, because everything he did had basically never been done before on television. Starting with the crazy golf show that was like the first thing he ever sold and produced. It was a, a golf show that ran on CBS for like a decade or something like that. It was, I don't remember the title of it, but it was like, you know, it was a golf show. Okay. <laughs> and he went from that to dark shadows, which no one had ever done a Gothic soap opera. And, and certainly, you know, when it transmorphed into the supernatural Gothic soap, no one had ever done that. And then no one had ever taken characters from a soap opera and put them in a movie. And he did that twice. And then Mm -hmm. he started doing these TV movies in the middle of doing all that. I think the Jekyll and Hyde came out in 68 or something like that. So it was just, he was constantly pushing the envelope. He did, the war series i think the first film took him like five years to film which was it was a mini series and then the second one four years or something like that so he literally spent 10 years of his life shooting two insanely large mini series for television he was always doing something that was ahead of what people were thinking at the time and that people were like well you can't do that dan and he would say, why not? <laughs> and then he would – apparently he was a great salesman because he would actually talk people into doing this crazy thing that he wanted to do. But then something like the Norlis tapes, why didn't they pick this up? <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, it's a proven creator. It's a proven star. Why? <laughs> why? You don't know. You, a lot of times good ideas just flounder because the – uh, the political climate, and I don't mean that in a in a national political way, but in within any given business organization, is just not right for it. You know, maybe right. some somebody doesn't like the stars, or the the producer that made John Carter of Mars has now left Disney, and the guy that's in charge of it now doesn't want the other guy's stuff to succeed. Sometimes it's just stuff like that. There's just there's just no no good reason for it, and we're all poorer for it. Yes, there's only one season of Kolchak, the Night Stalker. But don't you wish there was just one season of the Norlis tapes? Oh, man, it would have been amazing. Just one. Just one or one more movie. One more movie. Let's find out who has the rights to this, Steve, because Norlis tapes would lend itself to some original audio dramas, the way Big Finish does a lot of things. Oh, my God, you're totally right. It'd be perfect. It'd be perfect. You're right. That's a great idea. I wonder if if Nolan knows. (laughs) Hey, you know, if anybody out there knows, let us know. 
if so you I know one... who holds the rights, whether it's uh, it could be Dan Curtis, it could be could yeah. be Nolan, could be the could be NBC. <laughs> so I, I have one complaint, and it's not really a complaint, but it is something that I feel like I need to mention because anytime it happens in any other stories, I always mention it as a problem. Okay. I don't know if it's a problem or not, but this does have some point of view violations if you are going to go by strict, I guess, quote unquote, rules of point of view, depending on how you interpret what's on those tapes. We don't actually hear the actual narration of what's being told to the publisher or the other, the publisher. So we don't know what's really going on. If it's just Norlis telling him what his own personal experiences were, well, then why are we finding out about what happened with the woman and her dog and all that? Because Norlis wasn't there for that. Therefore, he couldn't relay that. Well, that's not bad, though, because he works with her. But on the other hand, does David Norlis know what the, the sheriff said to his golfing buddy? Right. You know, and- yeah. So just, just putting that out there, because it is something that I mention with other things. I, I feel like I have to mention it just to be fair. But again, who knows what we're being told on the tape? Right. And my you know? thought, my thought about that is that the, the tape is just an excuse to get us into an extended flashback. Sure. Um, sure. Sure. And, and good movie making. Now, if I were writing this as a prose story, I'd have to be really careful about that. But you know, sure. on the other hand, in the, the Kolchak, the original story, he's always telling you about things he doesn't know or wasn't mm-hmm. there at, but he's a reporter, so he here's what I think happened, <laughs> or something like that. And certainly you could say that with this, too. Uh, it sure. didn't concern me at all in the series. And I, I wasn't too concerned that people were like, Angie Dickinson isn't a really strong female character. And yes, in some sense, that's true. After a, her initial confrontations, she's more of a, you know, more of just a MacGuffin to keep the plot going. You know, he's, he's looking out for her. She's hanging around with him. They're doing perilous things together, but she's not, you know, not the, the gal that's wielding the shotgun in the first scene of the film, really <laughs> much of the rest of the film. Sure. So, and that's, you know, I could, I could see that, but she's not too bad. And, for, no. you know, Vanetta McGee is certainly an interesting female character and stuff. And people complain about character development as a 72 minute movie. What do you want? <laughs> yeah. I mean that go and watch a bunch of seventies television, dramatic television. I mean, that's what they did. You know, you had the guest star of the week or whatever. And, yep. you know, you can only do so much with so little time. I think we got more out of, and rightly so the story's about Norlis. So right. he's developed. That's what we need. Right. That's what we got. Yeah. And that's what we got. You are going to speaking of guest stars of the week. You are going to love the invaders, man. If you can actually watch <laughs> it from the beginning, that might be a good thing to do. But if, if you can, it's sixties television. So, so it's all episodic. So they're going to give you all the information you need in every show to watch every show. Cause that's yeah. the way things were then. There weren't season arcs generally there and they're, they weren't going to be rerun in order, you know, rerunning series in order is something that's only happened fairly recently. So they had to make them all self-contained. Yeah. So me, me TV currently the invaders. And I have no problem with that. One of my favorite TV series from the seventies is just like that. I mean, you can look at it and say, okay, here's a through line. Maybe if you watch it from start to finish, but it's a show called the sixth sense ran two seasons. Right. And I, I adore that film. Or I'm sorry, that series. I adore that series. And it's it's just like that. You know, you got your two main characters and guest star of the week here, guest star of the week there. Right. And and that's okay. You know, that's how it was. 
right, yeah. And and at the beginning of the invaders, there's no one that believes David Vincent. By the second season, maybe there's a handful of people. And by the end of the second season, and then it's canceled. So it's not like they, you know, they didn't have an idea that they were gonna wrap it up. It's just like, oh, you're not coming back next year. And oh yeah, you've already torn down all the sets and everything. So, yep, no no wrap up here. But you know, that was a, a very valid way to make television, and it's a great mm-hmm. way to make television that you don't have to just sit down and concentrate on where you can just say, I'm going to watch the invaders Saturday night and we're going to see where they are in the story and we're going to enjoy it. It, it works perfectly well. And so you're going to, you're going to dig it and it's got great, great guest stars. And every time I watch it and I watched it, I try to watch it as often as I can, even though I have the, the whole series on DVD, I watch it over the air because it's fun to watch it over the air. Every time I watch it, I think, oh, they were so close to doing something so cool with this <laughs> that if you were to take this and if you redid it, you could actually make it through story and and make it seem that the alien powers were maybe a little more consistent than sometimes they are. And It could have been. It's cool for what it is. And it, it's just just fingertips away from greatness. <laughs> okay. And the Norla tapes is touching distance of greatness. The it's a really cool TV movie. Highly recommend it. And that like I said, the only thing I don't like about it is they never did any more. Well, you know what? We are going to slowly run out of genre material when it comes to Dan Curtis here on Dan Sember. So let's Hold on to the Norless tapes. I'd like to revisit it next year with you. I have some ideas. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So let's go ahead, and I'm going to commit now. Ooh. Steve's going to be back in one year's time. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, he'll be back before then, too. But one year's time, we'll have him back, and we're going to revisit the Norless tapes. Some ideas are starting to form here as I chat with you. So. Oh, cool. Well, if it's not a whole episode, it'll at least be a digression in something else we're doing. Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to do a whole episode episode episode. I'm I'm built. Yeah. uh, Listeners, he is walking out to the edge of that plank and sawing it off behind himself. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) Will he hang in the air like Wile E. Coyote or will he plummet like Coyote does after he realizes he's hanging in the air? We're just going to come back next year to find out. Awesome. I really enjoyed this. Listeners, Steve really enjoyed this. If you can get your hands on it, watch it. And I'd love to hear what you think. Call in. Let me know what you thought of the Norless Tapes or Dan Sember or Dan Curtis or Steve's voice or whatever it is. <laughs> Just let me know what you think. Are you saying my voice is annoying? <laughs> I don't know if you knew this, Steve, if you listen to the episodes you're on, but I do so much processing on your voice. You know, I'm just... <laughs> so the last time we had you on, there were problems with your website. Is it back up and running? It is back up and running. And in fact, I even spent two hours last night with the customer service making sure that the programmed things that are supposed to go out, specifically the Frost Arrow stuff all the time, that's supposed to go out on the 15th and the 1st of every month, those are going to go out on time now, which they hadn't been. It had been working aside from that. Now, knock wood, it seems to be completely working. Sounds good. And of course, there's a link to Steve's website. On our website, stsullivan.com, if you want to just go straight there, or cushinghorrors.com. Yep. We'll take you to the Patreon. What you need to know. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, with any luck, the Tournament of Death 4 will be officially released in book and ebook form by the time you hear this. It's pretty oh, much out wow. now. 
but I need to put up the official announcement and do that kind of stuff. So there you go. Okay. So this episode is coming out the final episode of 2019. Woo-hoo. Happy New Year, everyone. There you go. Steve, what do you got coming up in 2020 you want to tease people with? Anything you can think of right now? More Frost Arrow is coming up. Okay. I have finished a bunch of role-playing game maps for a uh, set of modules being released by Paul Stormberg, hopefully by Gary Khan, which I think is in March this year. Those are the things that, that pop into my head, you know. Frost Arrow continues. Cushing Horrors, if I hadn't had to do all this other site stuff, I might have actually got that out in print. Hopefully that'll be out in print in early 2020, uh, if not by the end of this year, which since we're getting close to the middle of the month, the end of this year seems unlikely now. And I'm looking for fans on my Patreon and elsewhere to tell me what new thing they want me to do next. Frost Harrow has six books, so it's going to continue. <laughs> for a while but i need to write something new too should i write cushing 2 should i write daikaiju attack 2 should i write frost 7 or something else tournament of death is done though there are four of those there don't need to be any more so oh and there's going to be two collections of my blue kingdom short stories coming out too a problem maybe by the end of the year but definitely in the, the beginning of next year if not so i've got a lot of stuff and i'm on the verge of coming into print and ebook form so sounds good there you go lots going on well follow steve on facebook that's probably where he's going to mention most of this is that right Yep. okay and the monster conservancy so if you go savemonsters.com that'll take you to one of our facebook links and you can track me down from there if uh, no other way savemonsters.com the monster conservancy conserving monsters since 1818 there you go steve thanks for doing this man appreciate it Oh, you're welcome, Derek. Always a pleasure. So we've confirmed it. SDSullivan.com is up and running. Go check it out. Link in the show notes. You know the drill. Anyway, Steve, thanks for being part of the show. And yeah, I was serious, man. Next year, we're going to talk about the Norlis tapes again, because between now and then, well, some things could develop. So stay tuned for that. Listeners, you can help me out. Because if any of you know who owns the rights to the story of the Norlis tapes, maybe let me know. Drop me a line. Thanks again, Steve, for being part of the show. And I will have you back on. Let's see. I think we have the rallies coming up next, right? 2020 Monster Kid Radio. Be there. what I am now. For that I would give everything. There's nothing in the whole world I would not give. I would give my soul for that. The vain jealousy which prompted Dorian Gray to utter this fateful prayer was destined to sweep him into a life so fraught with vice and evil that its marks became horrible to behold. For the mad wish of Dorian Gray was granted through some supernatural miracle. And day by day, he watched his sins etch themselves upon his painted portrait, while he himself stayed young and handsome. Every vile thought and act, every criminal deed, left its mark upon the painted canvas that was to bear the burden of his shame. Down to depths of degradation, frightful to conceive, went Dorian Gray, seeking new outlets to satisfy his passion for pleasure. 
His extraordinary visits into the strange world of crime and sin became notorious. And when he reappeared again in society, men would whisper to each other in corners or look at him with searching eyes. Women, who for his sake had set convention at defiance, were seen to grow pale if Dorian Gray entered the room. What was this strange fascination this man held for everybody? To what limits of evil did he drag those he knew? Men and women alike all fell under the spell of his charm, and yet to know him was to court shame and disaster. Godzilla. Nothing you've ever seen can equal the thrills of this extraordinary motion picture. Nothing you've ever felt can equal its awesome fury as the mightiest monsters of the ages clash in the battle of the century. It sears the emotions with shock and terror. It staggers the imagination. All new in color. King Kong versus Godzilla. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Once again, thank you for being part of the Monster Kid Radio experience by listening to the show, downloading the show, retweeting the tweets, sharing the Facebook post, giving us honest reviews in the iTunes, Apple Store, podcast directories, or wherever the heck you download the shows. Just appreciate all of your support. I really appreciate it. I mean that from the bottom of my monster heart this time around. MonsterKidRadio.net is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio. You're going to find links to our Facebook page and our Facebook group and our Twitter. You're also going to find our contact information. If you want to be cool like Bill, you can send us an audio clip or just an email to monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657 that's 503-479-5MKR like I said all the links all this information it's in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net I mentioned a couple weeks back that I'm going to be revamping the Patreon page for Monster Kid Radio so stay tuned for that and over the past few weeks I have been uploading new shirt designs to our Public shop Make sure there's a link in the show notes for that as well, as well as links to everything that we've talked about in this episode of the podcast. That'll take you to Amazon. You can buy it there. We get like a buck or two because we're an Amazon affiliate. I listed pretty much every book of Steve's that I thought was relevant to Monster Kid Radio. So if you want to check out some of his fiction, please use the link in the show notes to do that. I've had a blast with Dan Sember this year, but we're going to go ahead and put a bow on it. There's a joke in there, something about bows and Christmas presents, but we're going to go ahead and put a bow on it and call it good because next time around, next week, it's a new month, it's a new year, and it's a new theme 
Come back in seven-ish days for the Satanic Rites of January. And we're going to be talking with returning guest Ken Height when we talk about the Val Luton film, The Seventh Victim. One night a man came in, tiptoeing in. I had a scissors in my hand. I struck at him. I ran away. He was lying in the hole. Blood around him. Your sister, Mary, is a murderess. I don't believe it. You go back to school, then forget Jacqueline. If you haven't seen The Seventh Victim yet, you've got seven days to track it down and check it out. Spoiler alert, it's awesome. It's a really great flick. So go check that out if you have an opportunity to do so. But even if you don't, come back to Monster Kid Radio to hear Ken and I talk a little bit about that film. And then other movies that we're going to be talking about during the Satanic Rites of January include things like the Satanic Rites of Dracula and The Devil's Reign and maybe some other movie or two if I can find the time to record and make those recordings. You know what? I'm babbling because it's Christmas Eve as I record this and I want to get this episode out maybe even a little early just so that you guys and gals have it in your ear holes. Merry Christmas. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution. Non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories is copyright 2019. That's the last time I'm going to say that. Jerry Green and the song A Bobo A Go-Go is copyright The Obsidians 2019. You can find them at theobsidiansmusic.bandcamp.com or follow them on Facebook because that's where they have announced their upcoming show at the end of January. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Happy New Year. Ciao.